Hey, it's Martine. Before we start the show today, I have a big favor to ask. Post Reports has been nominated for two Webby Awards, which is a huge deal. And the only way we win is if we get the most votes. So please vote for us to win. We'll put a link in our show notes and at postreports.com where you can do that. It only takes a few minutes and it really helps us a lot. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Here's today's show. On April 5th, the White House decided that they would extend the federal student loan payment pause for several more months instead of everyone returning to repayment in May. They will now have until the end of August. That's August 31st. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers the economics of higher education for The Post. So a big part of her beat is reporting on student debt. Federal student loan debt repayment has been on pause for two years. And now that's going to continue, at least through August. So for a lot of people who have been dealing with this debt for their entire adult lives, this pause during the pandemic has given them a glimpse of what life would be like debt-free. So I'd seen a lot of research that showed that Black women held the most amount of student loan debt. So I really wondered what would their life be like if they didn't have to make those payments? And the last two years presented the perfect opportunity to figure that out. So Danielle started talking to Black women to see what life was like for them without federal loans. Talking to a lot of the the women that were kind enough to share their stories, the first thing that they all said is they felt relief. They just felt like they could breathe and have a moment to themselves and not worry about this looming burden. My name is Alfie Coleman. I am 38 years old and I am located in Los Angeles, California. And the pandemic really allowed me to have rest, (laughs) like true rest. My name is Lamisha Brown. I am 35 years old and I am located in St. Cloud, Minnesota. So I was super excited about not having to pay back those student loans at that time and for us to be able to just focus on continuing to create some generational wealth. My name is Lisa Jackson. I'm 56 years old and I live in Odenton, Maryland. It felt like a reprieve uh, and yet it's still looming in the background. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 11th. Today, life without loans. For now. So can you just give a sense of where we're at in terms of student loans and decisions by the government on holding off on people paying those loans? Collectively, there's about $1.7 trillion of student loan debt. The vast majority of it is federal student loan debt, meaning that the federal government originates the loans. So back in March of 2020, the Trump administration decided that while we were at the height of the pandemic and the economy was shut down, that they would make the decision to allow people to pause their payments. Now, when Congress got a hold of that, they codified it into law and made it automatic. So that meant that anyone who had a direct federal loan that was held by the federal government would essentially not have to make a payment. On this vote, the yeas are 96, the nays are zero, the 60 vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed. That's about 41 million people. Now, a good percentage of those folks were not making payments on their loans yet because they were in school or just about to graduate from school. And you're allowed a couple of months before you have to start making payment. But we're talking 
millions and millions of people who have not had to make a payment on their federal student loan in more than two years. So let's get back to talking about the burden that Black women have shouldered when it comes to these kinds of student loans. Can you describe a little bit more what your reporting has shown about how that's kind of a a disproportionate role in, in who we see grappling with student loans? A couple of things that are really important here is that a lot of Black women are pursuing advanced degrees. Now, whereas for undergraduate loans, there's a cap on how much you can borrow from one year to the next. With graduate loans, the federal government allows you to borrow up to the full cost of attendance. Now, that is going to increase your debt load. The other thing to keep in mind is the racial wealth gap, right? So Black women don't have the sort of resources that allow them or their families to foot the bill for their higher education. And as a result of that, they'll have to borrow more. And that's kind of why we're in this situation now where they're holding a disproportionately high amount of debt relative to their actual population representation within higher education. And what are the stakes or the consequences of that? There are a multitude of uh, consequences to that. We're talking about having that kind of debt as you're starting out early in your life and not being able to pay it down within a reasonable amount of time meaning past 10 years, which is the standard, is that you're oftentimes making a trade-off with saving for retirement, with being able to save for a down payment to purchase a home. And home mortgages and housing is still one of the largest investments for many people of color Mm -hmm. and generally for many Americans. And being essentially locked out of those two avenues of wealth creation kind of creates a situation where you may be perpetuating the same resource gap that created the problem in the first place. But what's pretty remarkable is a lot of the women, especially the younger ones I spoke with, were just very smart about how they use their money. So what did that look like during the pandemic for some of these women you spoke to who haven't had to pay student loans for the past couple of years? Like, what did they do with that money? There is a lot of responsibility, I think, for me as a person who has achieved the highest level of education. So that's Lamisha Brown. She's a 34-year-old who recently got a PhD. And Lamisha is the kind of person who found the scholarships, got the grants, tried her darndest, worked as hard as she could to keep her debt burden down as low as possible. And she did so through her entire academic career and still came out with $34,000 in debt, which is pretty reasonable considering the level of education that she pursued. But she was just really thoughtful about how important it was to take care of her family And so um, one of the things that we did was we started putting away money that would have gone to student loans and saving that up so that we could purchase a second home. And so um, my partner is from um, Alabama. And so we decided that we wanted to purchase a home in Alabama. Um, Actually, at that time, we had been talking with um, his younger sister. So we're like, you know what? We're in a financial position to where we can purchase a home in Alabama and then have them living in it. Even in purchasing the second home, it struck me that she did it so that her sister-in-law would have a place to live. And she told me when I reconnected with her recently that when her sister actually moved out of the property, she turned it into Section 8 housing. And her reasoning was when she was growing up, she was living in Section 8 housing. And it was always important to her mom to make sure that they had a a clean, nice, beautiful place to live, even if they needed assistance. And she wanted to be able to give that to another family. I didn't grow up in a home where we owned the home. (laughs) You know, it was either um, 
renting. Um, you know, we had public assistance. So we always had some additional help. There was a point where we did live in a house, but of course, you know, we didn't own it. Other than that, it was like apartments and things. And so for me to be able to not only have one home, but two, I'm just extremely grateful. <laughs> and just kind of connecting with folks like that who, yes, they owe money, they're trying to pay it off, but they also have these responsibilities to care for their community and their family in ways that I think are, are not always captured and in, in these stories about student debt, just the nuance of it and the complexity of it. Wow. What did she say about what it was like for her to be able to make different decisions and have different priorities because she wasn't worried about paying off student loans for the time being? I think it gave her a chance to get a sense of what it would look like if she started without that debt, right? So hmm. you think about what transformational wealth creation could be like. People who start out of college without any sort of debt burden and who are lucky enough to have family who can bless them with some money for a down payment on a house or those sorts of steps that make it easier to create wealth. Well, Lamisha got a sense of what that could be for a while. And her and her husband, who also has student debt, not only did they buy a second home, but they also opened up a IRA and decided to invest more money into their retirement with the idea that hopefully not only would they not have to work for the rest of their lives and could possibly retire early, but also, and I thought this was darling, she has a spreadsheet with all of her nieces and nephews' names on it and how much money she would like to leave them to kind of seed them money to start off their own journey of creating wealth. I want to make sure that my nieces and nephews have something. And I had stipulations of like, if they went to college versus if they didn't go to college and how much they can get in all of these things. But yeah, I think about all of that a lot. Oh, wow. That, that's fascinating. This idea that this student loan reprieve essentially gave her a, a glimpse or a window into a different life, the life where she didn't have to worry about that debt, that she could start making all those plans and, and helping other people in her family benefit from generational wealth in a way that is available to many Americans. Can you tell me about who else you spoke with for this story? So I really wanted to try to get a cross-section of women in various parts of the country at different stages of their life. One woman I spoke with was Lisa Jackson. Lisa is in Maryland, and she is a single mother of two recently graduated college students, and that is the source of her debt burden. She helped put her son and daughter through school. These kids of mine didn't ask to be in the situation where they only had the one-parent household. And so as a way, and this probably shouldn't be, but as a way to compensate for some of the things they didn't have that maybe two parent households have, I made a decision that I would do whatever it takes to get them through college if they so chose college. And both of them did. They had grants, they took out loans for themselves, but she had to help them because they didn't have enough savings to put two people through school at the same time. So as a result, she ended up with $172,000 worth of parent plus loans that she is trying her darndest to pay off. Another young woman I spoke with is Alfie Coleman. Alfie is a army veteran who attended a for-profit college that really didn't give her a direct path to earning a degree. And as a result, had to stay pretty long to earn her bachelor's and ended up amassing quite a bit of debt Round about $100,000. So I'm just under the $100,000 mark. And for a long time, 
I was burning the wick at both ends, trying to make sure that I can make these student loan payments, trying to make sure that I can make good on a system that didn't really make good on me. What is happening on a policy level to help people like Lamisha and Alfie in the long term? So there are a couple of things. I think Senator Patty Murray, who is the chair of the Senate Education Committee, put out this this statement and I, I was able to speak with her about what she would like to see the department do before restarting repayment. And it was a really practical blueprint of addressing some of the repayment plans, right? There are a multitude of repayment plans. It's exceedingly complex and it could be really easy for people to fall through the cracks with that. So she wants to create a nice, simple, income-based repayment plan to make it easier for borrowers when repayment starts. She wants the department, for instance, all those people who had defaulted on their loans before the pandemic, they technically would qualify for this federal program that allows you to rehabilitate your loans after nine consecutive payments. Well, the last two years count for that. So she's saying automatically put them back into good standing so that they can start get a fresh start. So she's raising, you know, alarms about how we have to be really thoughtful about restarting the system. And she's not alone. Certainly a lot of Senate Democrats are saying the same thing. Elizabeth Warren has been very loud about this. On the House side, Ayanna Presley has been very loud about this. Canceling student debt will play a role in closing the racial wealth gap. It will ensure a robust recovery from this pandemic-induced recession, and it is a racial justice issue. I reached out to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley because I had seen her on very many occasions talk about her own experience having student loans and at one point defaulting on her loans before she was able to ultimately repay them. And what I thought was really fascinating is, you know, she talked a lot about how black women are praised for their ability to carry this country in so many ways. And that's great. But they're also struggling with this burden on their back and no one is fully addressing them and acknowledging that this is keeping their ability to to, you know, create wealth and to have something to leave their family, uh, it's it's holding them back. So we have to be more specific when we talk about who's really struggling here and how these policy solutions, such as debt cancellation, which is a big issue for her, could really affect the racial wealth gap and really start to address some of these disparities. And how do you think that this fits into other ways that the Biden administration has tried to give people some kind of financial relief during the course of the pandemic and are starting to question, like, how long these programs can continue? I mean, certainly this is, I think, the longest pandemic-related relief measure that the administration, both Trump and Biden, has allowed to go on. The rent moratorium ended, the child care tax credit ended, but the student loan payment pause has gone on for the longest. Now, certainly there are people who will say that is wholly unfair, considering that we're talking about highly educated people, oftentimes who have high incomes, being able to benefit from this, whereas the other measures that were taken during the pandemic disproportionately benefited folks who were lower income, who had more immediate need than, you know, folks who are against this pause continuing would say that student graduates have, they're not suffering unemployment. So why do they need this pause? But again, folks who support this policy will tell you inflation, all of the other expenses, 
So many of these people who have loans have children that they have to care for. So their money is being stretched and cut in so many places. And right now is not the best time to add yet another bill. And what do you think is at stake in this question of whether these loan payments will continue to be delayed in the future or not? So from a purely fiscal sense, this is a very expensive policy. It is costing the government over $95 billion thus far. We've probably topped that number already by delaying these payments, right? They are not charging people interest on those loans for the last two years. On a purely personal and kind of human front, uh, this time for, for a number of people who have not really had to face job loss and the fiscal pressure that was created by the pandemic, this has been an opportunity for them to, to set themselves off financially right. And the idea that that's going to end for some people is really frightening. Right? Because they haven't had to imagine balancing their own household budget with this additional bill. And soon they may have to. And that might make it really difficult. That might mean sacrificing some of the things like saving for retirement. Again, that might mean trying to figure out how they're going to pay for childcare costs all of those other expenses that many millennials have to think about. And then also for seniors, there are a lot of people I've spoken to who are over 65 who are retired, who are on a very fixed income and still paying off their student loans, in part because of taking out debt for their children or also for themselves as they went back to college to change their careers. So all of these things have to be taken into consideration as the White House and the Education Department moves on this policy. And then what about the idea of student loan forgiveness? I know that Biden, as a presidential candidate, was supportive of this idea of forgiving some amount of student debt. So is that something that he's currently considering or that he even has the power to do? So the president has actually instructed the Department of Justice, as well as the Education Department, to figure out whether he has the authority. Now, there is a Higher Education Act of 1965 that many proponents of using executive action to forgive student debt say gives him the authority to do so. Now, the president said that he was going to look into that a year ago, and we still haven't had a definitive answer as to whether he wants to take that action. He has said time and time that he would prefer for Congress to present legislation that he could sign to that effect. But given the divisiveness of the current congressional makeup, especially upon this issue of debt forgiveness, it's highly unlikely that Congress could successfully bring through a bill canceling any debt at this stage. There is not even agreement within the Democratic Party as to whether this is the smartest path forward. So the president on the campaign trail said that he would be willing to cancel at least $10,000 in education debt. And certainly after his election, he said that policy would be a part of his economic recovery plan. That never quite came to fruition in any of the bills that came about after Biden was elected. And that's a part why a lot of folks who are proponents of debt forgiveness say his best bet and the best bet for the 40 million plus people who owe federal student loans is for him to cancel some portion of federal debt through executive action. It doesn't seem to be a priority at this time because if it was, he would have done it already. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel reports on the economics of higher education for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. 
After the break, we've got one more thing about the double life of a WNBA player. We'll be right back. And now, one more thing from sports reporter Ben Golliver. I recently sat down to interview Cheney Ogumike, who's living this fascinating double life. For the uninitiated, Cheney Ogumike is a player for the WNBA. Thomas down to Ogumike, spinning, hooping, and one for Cheney. And she's an analyst on ESPN. If there's a team that is extremely motivated to win, based on Aaliyah Boston and last season, that heartbreak, uh, yeah, it makes sense, right? I think it's very common for professional athletes to have second careers in the media, but typically it happens after they retire, right? Because broadcasting and media jobs, those are exhausting, grueling careers that require all sorts of time commitment and travel. Now, Cheney was raised outside Houston and was a big-time basketball player even as a high schooler. She won multiple state championships, got a scholarship to Stanford, and went on to be the number one pick in the WNBA draft, and she currently plays for the Los Angeles Sparks. But parallel to that basketball career is a second career as an ESPN NBA analyst, and she spent about five years working her way up through the ranks to build up her broadcasting resume. Because I have, like, this crazy like, I want to succeed type of gene in the sense that, like, keep working until you're the best. Keep working until you're the best. Part of what inspired Janae to not just pursue athletics, but also go into broadcasting, was her mentor when she was in college at Stanford, Condoleezza Rice. She said, um, Janae, you can go as hard as you do on the court in the classroom. Like, you don't have to sacrifice academics to be great at basketball. Like, you can give energy to both. Speaking mm, of energy, right? Yeah. And so, like, a switch flipped in my head. I was like, you know what, like, let me actually start, like, engaging in class as much as I engage in everything else. And just, and so that changed my perspective on everything. everything. I think it just literally, that experience made me think, okay, when I come to sports, maybe I could be a broadcaster. Maybe I could be an entrepreneur. I could do both at the same time. It took that, you know, it's funny. My mom always says, like, oh, you could, you know, it took a different voice for me to hear it differently. We've seen a number of athletes, you know, take on this more than an athlete mantra, right? This idea of um, getting involved in voter drives, of, of raising money and building schools uh, in, their, in their home communities, of, you know, trying to extend their influence outside the sports sphere. And I think that's something that absolutely interests Cheney as she goes forward. And she's just trying to find the right way to do that with maximum impact. You're told to be great. You have to give your all to one thing. Well... That's not the way the world really works right now. You know, we're celebrated for being athletes, but then also we got our own swag and we've got our own causes and we've got our own platforms, you know? I'm 100% an experiment of that. Ben Golliver writes about professional basketball for The Post. Julie Deppenbrock produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Today's show is mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman with Alexis Diao. And just a reminder, go vote for us in the Webby Awards. The link to do that is in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.